Welcome to the Hope Chapel Sermon Podcast. We hope that you are encouraged by this teaching from God's Word. We currently are meeting again for in-person services and would love to have you join us if you feel comfortable. Our in-person service times are Saturday at 5 p.m. and Sunday at 9 or 11 a.m. You can also tune into our live stream on Sundays at 9 and 11 by going to hopechapel.org forward slash live. Good morning, saints of God. Are you ready to open the word of God? We have no time to waste this morning, so I'm going to invite you to open your Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. We're going to continue uh, in our study through Paul's letters to the Thessalonians. This morning, we're going to be reading from 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. This is what Paul has written as inspired by the Holy Spirit. Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things? And you know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. Church, this is the word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. So this morning we have a nice light passage (laughs) to accompany the debut of of our, our worship choir As I was preparing for uh, this message, I couldn't help but think of the Apostle Peter who wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3 that there are some things in Paul's letters that are hard to understand. And I just had to wonder if these verses were some of those things that Peter had in mind when he wrote that. Uh, These verses deal with eschatology, uh, the study of last things. And we could take weeks, we could take months and do like a serious treatment of this one text, harmonizing it with other prophetic texts like Daniel and Revelation and the Olivet Discourse and Matthew's Gospel and parallel passages. But we only have about 50 minutes this morning. 50 minutes because I'm preaching. You know what I'm talking about. So rather than dealing comprehensively with last things, uh, what I want to try to do this morning is invest our time wisely and focus on Paul's main emphases in this text. Amen? Okay, so first, a word about humility. A word about humility. I think that we need to approach this text uh, and the attendant subjects with humility for at least a few reasons. Uh, First, look what Paul says right in the middle of the passage in verses five and six. He says to these Thessalonians, do you not remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things and you know? Notice those phrases, when I was still with you, I told you these things, you remember, you know. But guess what, church? Uh, We were not with him, uh, therefore he did not tell us Uh, So we can't remember what he said. And so we have to admit that there are things related to this text that we don't know. We're in some sense on the outside looking in. We are disadvantaged. We are limited. And we need to remain humble. Amen. 
Dr. Leon Morris, who wrote a great commentary on 2 Thessalonians, wrote that this passage is probably the most obscure and difficult in the whole of Paul's writings. And the many gaps in our knowledge have given rise to extravagant speculations. We do not possess the key to everything said here, and it is well accordingly to maintain some reserve in our interpretations. So we need to approach this text with humility. And that brings us to a second need for humility. Uh, John Stott, Dr. John Stott, another commentator who's written, uh, said that church history is littered with incautious, self-confident, but mistaken attempts to find in Paul's text a reference to some contemporary person and event. Let this be a warning to us to be more cautious and tentative than some others have been. At the same time, we have no liberty to abandon the task as hopeless for 2 Thessalonians 2 is an important part of Scripture which has been written and preserved for the church's instruction. Amen? And a third and final word on humility. We're all Christians. Amen? And so differing on these matters shouldn't divide us. Next, a word of encouragement or a word about of encouragement. Uh, look at what Paul says in verses 1 through 2. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together with him, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. What is the central problem that Paul is confronting in this passage. Uh, these Thessalonians were shaken in mind. In, in modern vernacular, we might say they were shook. They, they were alarmed. They were disturbed. They were frightened. They were confused. Why were they confused? Evidently, based upon what Paul has written, they had been deceived. They had been misled by what Paul identifies apparently as um, a spirit or a spoken word or, or a, a counterfeit letter. He says a letter seeming to be from us. And so there's some sense in which false teachers and, 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 and false spirits had misled these Thessalonians into believing that the day of the Lord had already come, that it was upon them. Now, re remember from 1 Thessalonians, I preached on this exact text about a month ago, a month and a half ago, uh, that Paul encouraged these believers about the day of the Lord, uh, this special time that God has appointed in history, which coincides with Jesus's return. And Paul instructed these Thessalonians that this time of unprecedented judgment on the world would come certainly, that it would come suddenly, uh, that it would come unexpectedly, uh, when God's kind of unmitigated wrath would be revealed in such dramatic fashion as it has never been revealed before. Now, I want you, with the day of the Lord as the backdrop, to put yourself in the place of these Thessalonians. They were being misled. They were also being mistreated. They were being heavily persecuted. And so they were vulnerable to the deception that this day of the Lord, which would bring great wrath against sinful humanity, that this day of the Lord had fallen upon them. And this leads us to Paul's pastoral purpose in this text. Yes, we are reading a text um, that, that deals with future things. But as responsible students of Scripture, we need to approach this text with humble hearts and with focused minds. And we need to understand that Paul's primary purpose here is not to predict but to correct confusion so that he can encourage these discouraged Thessalonians. Does that make sense? Dr. Warren Wearsby has famously written that the purpose of Bible prophecy is not for us to make a calendar, but to build character. Paul emphasized this fact in both of his Thessalonian letters, and our Lord warned us not to set dates for his coming. Date setters are usually upsetters, and that is exactly what happened in the Thessalonian church. So church, therefore, as, as we today prepare our hearts to hear from this text, we need to look primarily to be encouraged. So let's leave the calendar building to God. Amen. And this morning, let's focus on character building for us. I think that Paul gives us three truths in this text 
that will help us on our way. And first, Paul tells us in this text that evil is at work. Evil is at work. Look what he says in verse 3. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. For that day will not come, the day of the Lord, unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Fast forward to the beginning of verse 7. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. So Paul's correction to these Thessalonians is that the day of the Lord could not have actually come upon them. It couldn't be here. That couldn't be what they're suffering or experiencing because two historical events have to precede it. They have to come first. Paul says that the rebellion must come and the man of lawlessness must be revealed. And the shared assumption between Paul and these Thessalonians is is that the rebellion has not come and the man of lawlessness has not been revealed. Therefore, the day of the Lord could not have come And that could not be what they're suffering. Paul speaks of this rebellion uh, that needs to come before the day of the Lord. This rebellion. Consider the word rebellion. The Greek word uh, is the word apostasia. Uh, That is where we get the word apostasy. And and the various English translations of the Bible will consistently translate this word here. uh, Apostasy or rebellion. But beyond the word, Paul doesn't give us any more description about this apostasy, about this rebellion. That's confused theologians and commentators. And so so many have sought clarification uh, in how this particular word was used in in the Old Testament, in, in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, which many of the New Testament writers read and quoted. Uh, And in the Old Testament, this word was primarily used to describe religious apostasy, uh, specifically in relation to to Israel's rebellion against God. Uh, Others have looked at how this word was used in classical Greek. It was often used to describe military and and political rebellion, legal rebellion. And so most theologians agree that Paul is using this word here, apostasia, to describe some future rebellion that in, in a broad sense encompasses all of these things. It encompasses both. It will be an apostasy or a rebellion against God, and it will be an apostasy or rebellion uh, against law. Add to this uh, that Paul identifies this rebellion with the definite article. This is not a rebellion, but the rebellion. And this hints at something consummate. It hints at something uh, climactic, something ultimate about this apostasy, about this rebellion. Now, some Christians believe that this rebellion is in the past, that it, that it has already occurred. Other Christians believe that this rebellion is still, is still future to us, that it is still yet to come. Some, some Christians hold that Paul was Uh, And when he wrote this, he was anticipating the the first century Jewish revolt against the Roman Empire, which culminated in Rome sacking Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple in AD 70. Uh, Others hold that Paul was referring to some climactic rebellion against God in the distant future, still future to us at the very end of the age. Paul doesn't tell us here. So we don't know for certain. And we should remain humble. Amen. That being said, this apostasy, this rebellion that Paul speaks of, which was certainly future to these Thessalonians, which is perhaps still future to us, is not just characterized by what it's called, the rebellion, the apostasy, but it is also characterized by the person who will be revealed with it. Paul says that if we want to recognize this rebellion, that we need to recognize this person. Again, at what he says in verse 3. For that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction. So Paul says that 
along with the rebellion comes the man of lawlessness. And first, I want us to be clear that Paul is talking about a real historical man. He's talking about a real person, a real human being. And he refers to this real man, this human being, in, in three ways here. He, he calls him the man of lawlessness, the son of destruction, and the lawless one. Two out of these descriptions refer to this figure as lawless. Whoever this figure is that Paul is referring to, uh, who will appear on the scene, uh, this figure is the ultimate embodiment of lawlessness. And here's where we just need to take a brief time out, and we need to think carefully about what Paul is getting at uh, in this name, man of lawlessness. Are you still with me? Yes. Consider the name itself. Uh, in the Greek, uh, man of lawlessness or lawless one uh, is composed of the, the letter alpha or the, the negative prefix uh, plus the word law, namas, ah plus namas, literally the one against the law or the one without law. Uh, second, throughout the Bible and starting all the way back in the garden, all the way back in Genesis 3, uh, the very essence of sin is rebellion against God. It is the assertion of the will of man over and against the will of God. And that's why John writes in, in 1 John 3, everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. <clears throat> Friends, this is very important to understand. Uh, Paul and John are not talking merely about disobedience. Lawlessness is not merely disobedience. Uh, lawlessness is not saying like, oh, I see, I see this boundary, but I'm going to transgress it anyway. Lawlessness is not saying, oh, I know this thing is wrong, uh, but, but I'm going to do it regardless. The essence of lawlessness is asking the question, who's to really say what is right and what is wrong? Uh, lawlessness it is the rejection of God is the divine lawgiver. Lawlessness is saying that truth is not external to me. Truth is not something that is defined and given, supplied by God. Truth is internal to me. It's defined by my will, by my preferences, and by my desires. Think back to the garden. How did the serpent tempt Eve? Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 5. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. Of course, we know that the Lord told the first man and the first woman that if they acted lawlessly, that they would surely die. And along comes Satan, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Packaged in there is this sense of determining good and evil for yourselves. And so Satan tempted Eve to question God's goodness. God is withholding from you. He's keeping something from you that's, that's really good. To question God's truthfulness. You will not surely die. But most of all, those deceptions led to the ultimate deception to question God's authority. You can determine good and evil. This is lawlessness. This is the essence of sin. Their sin wasn't that the fruit was inherently evil, like that God created everything good, but then he put this one wicked fruit on a wicked tree. Uh, their sin cons consisted in rejecting God as the divine lawgiver, seizing his crown and usurping his throne making his rightful place their own. And going all the way back to the first sin, the first lawlessness, the first apostasy, the first rebellion, every single instance of sin and rebellion and apostasy has followed that same pattern. Sin always, always, always leads to ruin. 
Lawlessness always, always, always brings destruction. You know, I like to say sin ruins, but Jesus restores. Amen? But nevertheless, Paul refers to this man of lawlessness as the son of destruction, denoting that he will be one who brings great destruction, but also that his end will be destruction. And this man that Paul calls uh, the lawless one, John calls ha antichristos, the antichrist. And, and John distinguishes in his letters between antichrists, plural, and the antichrist. 1 John 2.18, he writes, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that antichrist is coming, so now many antichrists have come. Therefore, we know it is the last hour. And so for John, the last hour is this time in between Jesus' first coming and Jesus' second coming, the time between his two advents. And for John and for Paul, uh, this last hour that we are living in right now is characterized by this identifiable principle of evil that is incarnated in men who are hostile and opposed to Christ. There is something at work which is anti-Christ and against Christ. Just four verses later, John writes, who is the liar but he who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This is the Antichrist, he who denies the Father and the Son. And there's a sense in which anyone who denies the Father and the Son and therefore denies the witness of the Holy Spirit is an Antichrist. Uh, John reiterates this point in his second letter, 2 John 7. For many deceivers have gone out into the world, those who do not confess the coming of Jesus Christ in the flesh. Such a one is the deceiver and the Antichrist. Are you with me? Friend, if you're here today and you have not believed in Jesus, you've heard about him, but you've not believed in him, have you ever considered the possibility that in the end, you might be found to be an anti-Christ? I can't think of a more horrible fate than to stand before Christ on the day of judgment and be so named by him. Jesus said, whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. And so, friend, if that's you, then I want to urge you this morning to turn to Jesus to put your hope in him, to leave behind your lawlessness and to find forgiveness and hope and joy in Christ alone. Church, we'll only find those things in Jesus, amen? amen. You will not find those things in yourself. You will not find those things in a significant other. You will not find those things in this world or in its stuff. You will only find forgiveness and hope and peace and joy and goodness in Christ. What does Paul say that this man of lawlessness will do? Paul says he opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. So Paul describes this antichrist, this man of lawlessness, with four verbs. He opposes, he exalts, he takes, and he proclaims. He opposes God, he exalts himself above God, he takes God's rightful seat, and he proclaims himself to be God. So first, this man opposes and exalts. Paul says that this man opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship. Not only does Antichrist oppose the one true God, Paul says that he opposes any conception of God, every so-called God, every so-called object of worship. You see, there is a sense in which for this one, there is no higher authority. 
He answers to no one. He serves no one. He uh, expects everyone to answer and to serve and to worship him. He's totalitarian. He's autocratic. He is blasphemous and he is lawless. Paul says that he takes. He's characterized by all these things in all these ways to such an extent, to such a heinous degree that he takes his seat in the temple of God. In other words, he takes that which does not belong to him rightfully. Uh, He attempts to enthrone himself in God's place. He attempts to take God's position and to decree only what God can decree. He's lawless. We read this text and we think, well, what does it mean when, when he says that the lawless one will take his seat in the temple of God? Are you with me? What does that mean? What's Paul referring to? Is he referring to a literal temple? Uh, is Paul referring to the second temple, which was still standing in Jerusalem at that time before it was destroyed in AD 70? Some think so. Is Paul referring to a new rebuilt third temple in Jerusalem that would be future to them and future to us now? Some think so. Is Paul speaking of uh, a figurative temple? Is he speaking of of the temple uh, being the church, the body of Christ, in which case Antichrist would be uh, the the Pope? The reformers thought so. Is he speaking of a metaphorical temple where uh, this Antichrist, through his actions and through his words and his pronouncements and proclamation, would, would establish himself as the supreme object of worship and arbiter of truth, the one who defines what is right and what is wrong? Some think so. You want to know what I think? I don't know. (laughs) I wasn't there when Paul told them. But regardless, Paul says one thing is for certain. When this man takes his seat in the temple, literally or metaphorically, he will do so proclaiming himself to be God because he is an ultimate blasphemer. Now look at what Paul tells them at the beginning of verse 7. As a corollary to all this, he says, for the, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Did you hear that? The mystery of lawlessness. Paul speaks of this mystery of lawlessness. Paul says that the man of lawlessness is yet to be revealed, but the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. And so Paul seems to be naming this secret power of lawlessness that is operating in the world. The man of lawlessness is future. The mystery of lawlessness is present. This is some kind of spiritual rebellion against Christ that it's hidden from the unbelieving world, yet surely, presently, at work. It's a spirit of lawlessness that is influencing human society. Can I ask you a question? Do you see the mystery of lawlessness at work in society today? I mean, for Pete's sake, we have grown men dressing up as women, wearing scandalous clothing, twerking in kindergarten classrooms. Perverse. Evil is being called good. The mystery of lawlessness is at work today. Similarly, John points to the spirit of the Antichrist presently at work in the world. First John 4, he says, Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not, every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and is now in the world at ready. Friends, here is my point. Can I get to the point? We live in a world where evil is at work. We live in a world where evil is at work, and Paul is clear that Satan is the one who stands behind that evil. Look ahead to verses 9 through 10. He says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan. The activity of Satan. With all power and false signs and wonders or miracles, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Guys, countless arguments have been put forward concerning the identity of Antichrist, uh, this man of lawlessness. Who is he? Who was he? Who, who will he be? You feel me? 
Remember, John wrote that many antichrists would come. Many antichrists have come. I'm not convinced that we've seen one such figure who has exhibited what Paul enunciates here in verse 9. One who has come with all power and false signs and wonders. And I think what is going on in this text, what Paul is getting at, uh, what he's telling these Thessalonians, is that the ultimate fulfillment of Antichrist will be the ultimate counterfeit of Jesus Christ. A Jesus worked miraculous signs and wonders by his divine power in order to reveal and authenticate his identity and speak truth into the darkness. Amen? Amen. Antichrist will work miraculous false signs and wonders to counterfeit his identity and to deceive the world. In this text, Paul uses parallel language. He speaks of two comings. He speaks of Jesus' coming, Jesus' parousia, and also of Antichrist's coming, of Antichrist's parousia. But the contrast is, whereas the coming of Christ is by the power of God, Paul warns that the coming of Antichrist is by the activity of Satan. And so Antichrist, as a total counterfeit of Jesus Christ, makes perfect sense as an ultimate act of deception. Because how does the Bible describe Satan? He's the liar. He's the father of lies. That's what Jesus calls him. He's the, he's the deceiver. Satan traffics in deceit. Look at how Paul begins and ends this passage. He begins and ends it addressing deceit. He says to these Thessalonians, let no one deceive you in any way. And in verse 9, he says, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all wicked deception. And so bad news comes before good news. You understand me? And the bad news of this passage is that evil is at work. Evil is at work in this world until the end, and evil is working to deceive, and evil is working to destroy. But the good news of this passage begins with the following certainty. Are you with me? And that certainty is that though evil is at work, still God is in control. God is in control. Paul has said two things must happen before the day of the Lord. The rebellion must come and the man of lawlessness must be revealed. And then in verse, verses 6 through 7, Paul speaks of this restrainer that holds back or somehow confines this lawless one in his great rebellion until his time. Look at verses 6 and 7. He says, and you know what is restraining him now so that he may re be revealed in his time. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. You guys still with me? It's heavy stuff. Paul's telling these Thessalonians, in effect, that it is useless trying to identify or predict this man of lawlessness um, before he is revealed, because until he is revealed, he is hidden by this restrainer that's holding him back. And part of the challenge of identifying this restrainer that Paul speaks of is that he speaks of this restrainer both as a what, what is restraining, he says, but also as a who, who now restrains, he says. So it sounds impersonal on one hand, it sounds personal on the other hand. Does that make sense? And there's been endless speculation about who or what this restrainer is. Some commentators have seen this restrainer as the Roman government operating in the first century, or maybe extrapolating things out, the civil government generally restraining evil, um, or maybe the Roman emperor, like Augustus being the restrainer before Nero was unleashed and persecuted the Christians. Some have seen the Holy Spirit as the restrainer, or, or the church uh, in the world as the, the restrainer that holds holds back this lawless one in this rebellion. You know, Jesus said the gates of hell won't prevail against his church. Some have seen the preaching of the gospel as the restrainer, or Michael the archangel as the restrainer. Michael is pictured in Daniel and Revelation as is holding back or restraining Satan and his forces of darkness. Do you want to know who the restrainer is? Do you want me to tell you? 
I don't know. I also want to know the identity of the stranger. <laughs> Paul told them, but he didn't tell us. Humility, amen? Amen? amen. Okay. Some of you are still with me. <laughs> Let me ask you this question. Do we really need to know? I don't think so. What we do need to know, church... And what those suffering and confused Thessalonians needed to know is that God is in control. God is in control. He is in control of all this. God is in control of the course of history. God is in control of the times and the seasons. God is in control over the timing of Antichrist's appearing. God is in control over the nature and extent of this, this rebellion that will come with him. God is in control of this restrainer that Paul speaks of. There's nothing... Nothing in the program of human history that falls outside the boundaries of his sovereignty. Amen? But Paul says that there's a point in time when this restrainer will be moved out of the way. And, and in the Greek, the, the picture is of something in the middle of two other things just being removed. And so we should ask, who is doing the removing? God is. And then Paul says that Antichrist will be revealed in his time. Well, who's appointed that time? Who's fixed it? God has. And so, in all of this, Paul is encouraging the Thessalonians. He's encouraging us that though Satan opposes God and his church, though God's people face persecution and suffering, though Satan will inspire this one final gasp, this climactic, act of rebellion against God, though evil is at work in this world, we can have hope through all of that. We can have hope in the face of it because God is in control. Evil is at work, but God is in control. Friends, is that good news to you? Now, at this point in the text, we need to turn our attention to a difficult aspect of God's sovereignty. You know, as if we haven't been dealing with difficult things already. I'm going to start reading back at the end of verse 10 for context, but we're going to be focusing on verses 11 through 12. Paul says, those who are perishing refused to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. We're like, whoa, God does that? That's gnarly. Here's what it means. What it means is that people have willfully refused God's truth. They have refused the good news of his son. And so God, in response, has shut them up in their denial of the truth. He, he, has, he has fixed them in their denial of the truth as a form of judgment. Uh, verse 11 literally, lead, literally reads that, that they should believe the lie. Uh, therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they would believe the lie. Uh, what, what is the lie? The lie with a capital L. Uh, Satan is a liar. He's the father of lies. and He's imposed many lies on humanity. Uh, but there is one lie with a capital L uh, that from the beginning has led people astray. And we read it earlier in Genesis chapter 3. Let's read it again. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil, determining it for yourselves. The lie with a capital L is the lie that man is his own God, that man can take God's place in determining what is true and what is not, what is right and what is wrong that man is the captain of his own fate, and that he is accountable to no one beyond himself and therefore can do whatever he pleases. That is the lie with a capital L. And Paul describes the lie with a capital L and God's response to it in Romans chapter 1, verses 18 through 32. And there, Paul explains how God's wrath is being revealed against those who reject the truth, and live according to the lie. In Romans 1.18, he writes, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. Do you see those two words? 
they suppressed the truth. Fast forward to verse 25. They exchanged the truth about God for the lie and worshiped and served the creature or themselves rather than the creator. And Paul says, because people suppress, they, they push down the truth because they love their sin and because they choose the lie that God's wrath is present tense, presently revealed against them. And that wrath takes the form of giving people over to a calcification of that lie in their hearts with the result that they are given over to lives of perpetual sin. And friends, sin ruins sin ruins God giving us over to sin is a form of God's judgment and one of the biggest misconceptions about God's wrath today uh, is that God's wrath against human sin is reserved exclusively for the next life that God's wrath is only experienced in hell God's wrath certainly is experienced and certainly exists there but what most people don't realize today is that God's wrath is both present and future. Now, I'm going to say something that's going to sound paradoxical on the heels of that sentence. God is good, church. Amen? Amen. God is good. And because he is good, he is just. And because he is just, he will punish rebellion. He will punish sin. And because he is holy and righteous, not only will he punish sin, but he hates it. He hates it because he's holy. And don't be mistaken, every single one of us is created in his image. That truth is inescapable, whether you acknowledge God or not. Uh, that, that image shows itself every time we see evil in the world and our hearts instinctively cry out for justice. We were made that way because we were made like God. And just like our sense of justice is provoked by human evil, God's anger is provoked by human evil. That is not because God is mean. That is because God is good. Amen. And God hates human rebellion. And one way God expresses his wrath against human rebellion is in giving people over when they treat him and when they treat his word with contempt. When they are found in contempt of divine court. Pharaoh heard God's word and saw God's wonders, yet he refused to bow to God's will. And scripture says that God hardened Pharaoh's heart, that he gave him over to his own lawlessness, that he gave him over to his own sin, and that ultimately led to Pharaoh's destruction. Are you with me? These are heavy things. God's word has heavy things to say to us. And here in verses 11 and 12, Paul shifts back into the present tense. He's been talking about the future. He's been talking about the rebellion that will come. He's been talking about the lawless one who will be revealed, the restrainer who will be removed. But here Paul shifts into the present tense and says, literally, because those who are perishing have refused to love the truth, have refused to believe the gospel. Because of that, God is presently sending them a strong delusion. He is giving sinners over to the very sin and error that they have willfully embraced. That, friends, is a scary thought. If you are here today, if you're here this morning, and God has revealed the truth to you, if he has revealed to you the truth of the gospel, if he has revealed to you the truth that you are a sinner and that you stand guilty before him and that you need a deliverer and that his son has come to be that deliverer, then I want to encourage you, do not delay a decision. Do not gamble with God's wrath. Don't say to yourself, oh, I think this good news about Jesus, there might be something to it. I could get into that a little bit, but I don't want to give up my own sin. I don't want to give up that thing or that thing. I don't want, I don't want to give up my autonomy. I don't want to give up my freedom. That's the spirit of lawlessness speaking. That's the spirit of antichrist speaking. Don't play games with the God of the universe. Do you think you'll beat him? Don't risk his hardening. Don't risk his giving you over to your sin. 
You don't have to be given over to sin. You can be delivered from sin. That's the good news of Jesus. The good news of Jesus is that you do not have to be destined to wrath. Paul wrote to these Thessalonians, but you are children of the light. You are not destined for wrath. Friend, you don't have to be destined for wrath either. You can be delivered from it. Look to Jesus, put your trust in him, cry out to him, call upon his name, seek forgiveness in and through his finished work. Moving on. Friends, as we draw from this text together, I can't say to you with certainty what the rebellion is, when it's going to come. I can't say with certainty who the man of lawlessness is or, or if he's come or if he's still going to come. I can't say with certainty if this temple that Paul speaks of, that the man of lawlessness is going to take his seat in, if it's literal or metaphorical. I can't say with certainty who this restrainer is. Are you with me right now? But there's one thing that I can say to you right now, here today, this morning, with absolute certainty. And if you hold on to one thing this morning, hold on to this thing. Jesus wins. Jesus wins. And that's what Paul tells us. He says in verse 8, And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. This lawless one will be revealed and all Jesus has to do is walk in the room and this guy's dead. Jesus wins. Jesus triumphs. Jesus conquers. Jesus vanquishes. Paul says that Jesus conquers with the breath of his mouth. This is is a reference to the infinite power of his word. Jesus is no counterfeit like Antichrist. He is the real deal. He is the son of God. He is God the Son. He is God in the flesh. He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. Jesus in his divinity was present at creation. Andrew preached this to us last weekend. He said, let there be light, and light existed. Jesus spoke the totality of everything that is into existence by the power of his word. The writer of the Hebrews says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. And just as Jesus spoke powerfully in the beginning, he will likewise speak powerfully in the end. And this text shows us that even when Satan brings his very best, even when Satan brings his A game, when he gasps in in his final attempt to overthrow the true lawgiver, this text shows us that by the power of his word, Jesus will crush the great rebellion, that by the power of his word, Jesus will kill the lawless one, that by the power of his word, Jesus will will bring his enemies to nothing, that by the power of his word, he will bring all pain and suffering to an end, that by the power of his word, the word that he used to speak into existence, this creation, he will bring into existence new creation. This text tells us there is no place in heaven or on earth or anywhere else where Jesus will not claim victory. There's no place in creation or new creation where Jesus will not reign supreme. Every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess in heaven and on earth and under the earth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And the pattern to his comings is first suffering, then glory. Jesus came once and he is coming again. And the pattern is suffering before glory. First Jesus came in humility. Soon Jesus will come in power. First Jesus came to suffer. Soon Jesus will come to conquer. And when he does, he will crush his enemies, he will judge the lawless, he will gather his people, and he will make all things new. And friends, we are Christians. We are people of the king. We are people that he has saved from the lawless one. And this promise of his glorious return is our blessed hope. It is the hope that carries us through everything in this life no matter what we're going through, because of this hope, we can wait well. Because of the hope of his return, we can wait well for his return. We don't need to be shaken by trials. We don't need to be shaken by failures. 
We don't need to be shaken by sickness or injury. We don't need to be shaken by tragedy. We don't need to be shaken by loss. We don't need to be shaken by politics or world leaders. We do not be shaken by persecutions. There's nothing in this world that needs to shake us because we know that Jesus wins. We can wait well. And as dark as this life can get, friends, never doubt in the darkness what God has revealed in the light. And what he has revealed in the light is that Jesus wins and therefore we have hope. And so I leave you, conclude with Paul's words to Titus in Titus chapter 2. Words that we should treasure in our hearts and hold on to as we walk with Jesus in this life. Though evil is at work, God is in control and Jesus wins. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word which speaks the truth to us about ourselves but even more about your son and what he's done for us, what he's accomplished for us, what you've made available to us through him. As we turn our attention and our time and our hearts to remembering you, Jesus, we pray that you would be honored in our midst, that our hearts would be encouraged. And as we take in these elements, we would be nourished. We would be nourished by the hope that we have in the gospel. Amen. On behalf of the Hope Chapel family, I'd like to thank you for tuning in to the sermon podcast. If you would like to know more about our church, you can visit www.hopechapel.org.